I've observed before just how relational Proverbs is. It exhorts us to be part of God's people. Proverbs works and wisdom works as we show up and we're willing to seek wisdom from those whom God has put in our lives. We read this book and we show up. And that is how you would pursue wisdom. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part nine of Skillful Living, Introducing Proverbs with Pastor Paul Twiss, a 12-part study in the book of Proverbs. Pastor Paul's text today is chapter four, verses 10 through 19. King Solomon, the wisest king often associated with the book of Proverbs, was the son of King David. Solomon was entrusted to build the temple and was keeper of Judah, the ancestral line which brought the world Jesus Christ. Solomon wrote not all but many biblical proverbs and likely compiled the book of Proverbs. He is seen counseling his sons in the narrative of chapter 4, but it takes more than a caring father and the king that took Israel to its pinnacle of power and prosperity to make his offspring wise. When we're in Christ, however, the guidance of the Holy Spirit makes the Proverbs come to life. Holy Spirit empowerment brings Old Testament wisdom with power. Here's part nine of Skillful Living, Introducing Proverbs. In Ecclesiastes 9, Solomon says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. I love that. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Give yourself to something. But understand, measure that commandment with the fact that you cannot successfully navigate through all of the contours of life unless you have clear biblical principles of wisdom laid out in your mind, in your thinking. If you run at it as hard as you can and you're naive as to wisdom, you will stumble over and over again and your life will be one that dishonors the Lord. Either that or you will simply lack confidence as a Christian, you won't know how to put God's best on display in the gray areas. Let me just illustrate with what might look something like your daily life. My guess is you don't get to proclaim Christ every hour of every day in the office. And that's okay because we have a responsibility. We're being paid by our employer and we honor that. And it's not always wise to be trying to evangelize in the workspace. My guess is, similarly, your conversations around the dinner table with your children are not always centered around the gospel rehearsing Bible stories. And that's okay, because there's other things that have to be talked about. And on a similar note, my guess is that your conversations with your spouse are not always talking about how it is that you might further your ministry in the church and, and better and more fully contribute to the life here. And that's okay because life keeps happening and there are things that you just have to talk about and there's, there's work and there's business that needs to get done. And so the question arises again as you look at all of those times when you're not necessarily setting forth Christ in an explicit manner, 
You just have to do your work right now. The question becomes, how do I do it in such a way that I really am putting God's glory on display? How do I do it in such a way that I'm honoring the Lord to the utmost? You're in a meeting at work. The room is full of people. You're the only Christian there. You have to do the work of the meeting. This is not your opportunity to share the gospel. You're in a meeting and there's work to be done. So, so how do you go about that meeting that's going to be distinctly different from those around you? It's not the time to be sharing the gospel. So, so what are you doing in that meeting that's any different from any other believer in the room? And the answer is you're conducting yourself according to the principles of wisdom. Wisdom comes into play and it has such a part to play in your testimony and in the big picture purposes of the Lord. And so, in that meeting, just by way of example, you speak, but you only speak when you know that what you're saying is completely true. You only speak when you have verified the facts and you are content to hold your tongue when you're uncertain as to the truth of something. Why? Because you've read the book of Proverbs and you've seen that over and over again in these chapters, one principle that comes out is that it is the wise man who speaks truth and the foolish man that speaks that which is false. So you commit to living out that principle. Well, then in the midst of that meeting, you realize that there's something you don't know and you're willing as a Christian to voice your ignorance. You're willing to say, I need some help. You're willing, unlike many others in the room, to speak up and say, could I just lean on your knowledge here? Why? Because you've read the book of Proverbs and one principle that stands out to you is that the wise man is willing to acknowledge his dependence on others. And it is the foolish man that tries to go it alone. And if we carry on the illustration, there's a point in the meeting where somebody needs to correct you maybe rebuke you in a work context. And your response in that moment is so key. And you've read the book of Proverbs, and though your flesh is fighting against the principle given here, and you want to argue back, you realize that one of the principles that you are responsible for living out is that you're willing to receive correction. And now just think about that. In one hour of meeting time, you've conducted yourself according to biblical principles and I would say you've made gains for the gospel. I guarantee you, if you've been faithful to your profession of faith, if you have made it known that you are a Christian, I guarantee there are those that are watching you. They are watching to see how you behave. And there'll be times and opportunities when you get to tell them the glorious good news. There are other times when you can't and you must conduct yourself according to wisdom. And as you do so, you will be the aroma of Christ to them. There'll be something markedly different about your life. And you are making connections between the small and the mundane and the big picture purposes of the Lord. Now, there is another step that Solomon gives just to conclude this first half of the poem when he says, verse 13, simply keep hold of instruction. So we gather the information, we exercise it, and we hold on to it, he says. Keep hold of instruction, do not let go, but guard her. The key point is that excellent living, skillful living, isn't just for a month, it isn't just for a year, but it is for your whole life. 
when you commit to this, you're in it for the long haul. Now, this maybe presents more of a challenge to us than it did to Solomon or his son. And the reason I say that is because it requires much patience. As we live in an age that thrives on immediate results, immediate gratification, instantaneous responses, the path of wisdom is one that demands much patience. Think about what our Lord said about wisdom. Wisdom is vindicated by her children. Meaning, if you make a good decision, if you pursue that path of excellence, the fruit of it will not necessarily be immediate. In fact, more likely, it will come to be known many years after your good choice. Jesus says, for a whole generation, wisdom is vindicated by her children. The fruits of wisdom most likely will not be immediate. And so the call is that you would be patient. There must be a willingness to go against the grain, a willingness to swim upstream, knowing that there'll be very little discernible reward in the here and now. If we were to sum up the exhortation of this first half, I would say, friend, there is nothing wasted in God's economy. The life that he has given you, he has given to you. If you're a stay-at-home mum, if you're a taxi driver, if you're a factory worker, if you're a teacher or a lawyer, whatever fills your day-to-day, your hour-by-hour, it's no accident. God has given it to you, and it's his very best. And he requires that you pursue it according to wisdom. And when you do, the insignificant becomes eternally significant. Now, that's the exhortation. By way of application, I would simply encourage you more and more to be in this book and also to be here. I've observed before just how relational Proverbs is. It exhorts us to be part of God's people. Proverbs works and wisdom works as we show up and we're willing to seek wisdom from those whom God has put in our lives. We read this book and we show up, and that is how you would pursue wisdom. Now, lest his son was not encouraged and incentivized to do what he told him to do, he then gives a chilling warning in the second half. Verses 14 through 17 is the second half of this poem, and I've titled this, The Neglect of Wisdom Will Be Your Ruin. The neglect of wisdom will be your ruin. In this second half, there is really one major observation that we must observe. The observation is best seen as we back up a little bit and and see Solomon's specific language and his logic. If you look again at verse 11, he says, I've taught you the way of wisdom. Literally, in the original text, in the way of wisdom, I have taught you. In the way of wisdom, I have taught you. What that does is it sets up an expectation for us, the reader. When you get down to verse 14, we read, Do not enter the path of the wicked, or literally in the original text, in the path of the wicked, do not enter. Now just think about what Solomon's done there. He's already set our expectations in verse 11. In the way of wisdom, 
I have taught you. And then verse 14, in the path of, and I think a close reading of the text would lead us to, to expect and to anticipate that we finish the sentence with the word folly. You see, wisdom and folly, we know, are always at odds with each other in the book of Proverbs. They are the antitheses in the way of wisdom, but how about in the way of folly? And yet that is not what Solomon says. He says, in the way of the wicked. He says, in the way of the wicked. He switches from talking about wisdom, not to talking about folly, as we might expect, but in the second half of the poem, he jumps straight to the concept of wickedness. In fact, there's, there's no mention of folly here as he paints a portrait of what the wicked are like. And we then must be asking the question, why, or of what significance is this? The significance is not that wickedness and folly are synonymous. It's not that they're the same thing. They are different. You can be a clumsy Christian without necessarily being wicked. But make no mistake, the two concepts are very much related. There is, as you read through the book of Proverbs over and over, a tight connection between folly and wickedness, between folly and sin, between folly and evil. And what Solomon does and what he's hinting at here is the fact that as you pursue folly, as you neglect wisdom, as you neglect wisdom, invariably you're choosing the path of folly. And as you do that, you are placing yourself further and further and further away from the blueprint that God has given for life. You are no longer pursuing a path of wisdom that leads to righteousness. And as you drift over here down a route of folly, you start to get closer and closer to sin. And when the taste of foolishness is in your mouth, sooner or later, you will develop an appetite for sin. Eventually, and we don't know quite how it will happen, where it will happen, but the text is clear. There is a relationship between folly and sin. And you may be even thinking as I'm talking about this relationship that it's a little bit harsh and maybe the language is too strong and you just can't quite see how clumsy living could ever re result in sin. The clearest example, I think, is on the, the societal level and it relates to the Enlightenment in the West. In Western civilization, before the Enlightenment, we lived in, by and large, a Christianized society. Now, I'm not saying a Christian society. It's not that everybody was a believer in the truest sense of the word, but we did live in a Christianized society, which meant the one worldview available was that God was the center of all things, and we can explain life only by reference to him. That was the worldview prior to the Enlightenment. So not everybody was a believer, but everyone would have explained the world around them with some kind of reference to God. The Enlightenment came. The Enlightenment was not fundamentally a rejection of the gospel. It was not initially fundamentally a rejection of the gospel. The Enlightenment was simply the idea that we could explain the world somehow without reference to God. That that which we previously couldn't explain could now be explained by man's wisdom. That's why we call it the age of reason. Now, prior to the Enlightenment in the Christianized society, 
the implication of that one worldview was that the laws, the governance of each and every country in the West reflected Christian principles. During the age of reason, when we made a foolish endeavor to try and explain the world without reference to God, we saw more and more foolish talk. We saw more and more foolish thinking and more and more foolish scholarship. And fast forward a few hundred years, and we're now at the point on a societal level where we desire and we celebrate wickedness. Our folly has turned into an appetite for sin. There is no sense in which governments rule now based upon Christian principles, but rather we go after that which is evil and wicked and try to make them the norm. Prior to the Enlightenment, divorce, abortion were unheard of. Now they are celebrated, championed, and sought after. Folly leads to wickedness. And it is all consuming. They cannot sleep, verse 16, unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. These things, sleep and bread and wine, they're the staples of life. They're what keep us alive. And Solomon says, for the foolish man who slips down that path and it becomes wickedness, for him, evil and intentional harm are what keeps him going. And think about just how all-encompassing this is by the simple nature of the structure of this book. I've said before, when you get to chapter 10 and following, so many people struggle with Proverbs because one proverb after the next seems to be completely unrelated. So Christians struggle with the structure of Proverbs. We get a, a proverb on money, and the very next one jumps to the subject of friendship. And it seems ad hoc, but it's really not. Scholars have suggested that actually that, that jumping about of subjects just reflects the nature of life. And the idea that's teased out is that as you pursue wisdom in one area at work, eventually the benefit will overflow into the next area of your life, namely your family. And as you pursue wisdom there, it will overflow into another area, let's say finances. And exactly the same is true of folly. If you are content to be a fool in the workplace, it will bear out consequences there and they will bleed into every other area of your life. As much as you might like to keep your mistakes contained, make no mistake. Life is complex, and it's founded upon connections, and everything you do has consequences. And the neglect of wisdom is the pursuit of folly that leads to wickedness, and it is all consuming. And so Solomon concludes in the only proper way that he can conclude. Verse 18, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Notice the journey of stumbling through this poem. Verse 12, the wise man will not stumble. Verse 16, the wicked man tries to cause someone to stumble. And then in verse 19, but eventually it is they who stumble. 
The path of wickedness is blinding. It's blinding so that you fumble your way through life and the only direction that you're headed towards is darkness. And by contrast, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. As you pursue wisdom and you give yourself to this, you understand that there is a security to this way of life. And the longer that you walk in the path of wisdom, the brighter is the light. And the more you delight in the good things that God has given to us, and it is leading you, it is leading you onto the fullness of salvation. We gaze upon Christ. We submit ourselves to his commands and pursue holiness. And we pursue wisdom, knowing that there is a day coming very soon when you will stand before the Lord Jesus and you will see him face to face and you will be like him because you see him. And you will look around and you will see your brothers and your sisters, all sin completely gone. And in that day, we will receive God's very, very, very best for us, no longer in a broken world, no longer experiencing the futility of life. And we will know perfectly how to enjoy that. May we all be faithful to the responsibility that we have to pursue wisdom unto salvation. Let's pray to close. Path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until fullness of day. Father, we praise you that we have a glorious future, that we are headed towards the establishment of the day. And we understand that you have given us means by which to pursue that end. The Bible is so clear. We are to look and to gaze upon our Savior, your Son, Jesus. As we look to him, we are transformed. We are to strive and to work to submit ourselves to the commands that call us unto holiness. And we're to pursue wisdom. A wisdom that is not of this world. A wisdom that teaches us how to navigate life. A wisdom that brings meaning to the insignificant and the meaningless. We praise you and we ask that you would work in our hearts so that we would be faithful to this end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Solomon himself did not show wisdom conducting his own life in his later years, which may have despoiled his counsel to his sons. Yet Pastor Paul ended his message today pointing out that Solomon concluded this passage in chapter 4 the only way he can. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The path of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Isn't it ironic, in light of their sad end, that the way of the wicked still entices, confusing seekers of wisdom and prompting the wicked to often heap contempt upon them? We must fix our gaze on Jesus, remembering that the wicked man's path will not always be the way of worldly gain. 
wise living and the pursuit of excellence will never be regretted. To learn more about following God in wise living, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. Select Broadcasts for access to our audio archives where you'll find an abundance of Scripture wisdom to help you. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If this program has a positive impact on your walk with Jesus, will you consider making a financial gift to be part of this gospel outreach ministry? On our homepage, timelesstruthtoday.org, simply select Donate to make your gift of any amount. Join us tomorrow for Part 10 of Skillful Living, Introducing Proverbs, as Pastor Paul shares how we can still find friends in a foolish world. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening.